Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? That good, huh? Well, in our current series, Living on Hope, we're seeing that once we attach our hope to the right thing, it has practical implications for the way that we live. Peter told us earlier in chapter 1 that God has caused us to be born again to what? To a living hope. A living hope. Peter is telling us that there is a metaphysical reality working in our inner being when we encounter Christ. We are born again to what? To a living hope. Belief in Christ is more than belief. It's more than belief. It is more than an allegiance to a specific religious institution or an adherence to a particular doctrinal stance. Belief in Christ is more than belief. Belief in Christ is transformation. It's transformation. When we authentically encounter Christ, we cannot help but to be transformed, as Paul would say, from one degree of glory to another. In our passage this morning, Peter will show us that an authentic encounter with Christ will enact a radical transformation in our heart and our soul. In other words, when we authentically encounter Jesus, he transforms the very essence of who we are. This is the metaphysical and somewhat mystical reality of the gospel. This is the living hope at work in us. He gives life to our mortal bodies. Specifically this morning, we're going to examine the living hope of love. And and we're going to see three things. We're going to see that we are purified for love. We are born of an imperishable seed. And we are growing into salvation. But before we take a look at that, let's turn to the Lord and ask him to bless our time together in his word. Father, we thank you so much for the love that you have for us and that you have expressed that love through your written written word. We thank you for the hope that you extend to each one of us through that written word. And Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear what you have for us this morning. In your name, amen. All right, look down at verse 22 with me. We're going to be in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your soul by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. As American evangelicals, We are enamored with the notion of the personal Jesus. We're enamored with the notion of the personal Jesus. We love being known as the people who are saved into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, this is not without its merits, right? Having a real, personal, authentic relationship with Jesus Christ is a very good thing. Indeed, we are saved into a relationship with Jesus. 
However, we are not saved into an exclusive relationship with Jesus. We're saved into a relationship with Jesus and the entire community of saints, which includes everyone sitting around you in this room right now. Here we have to grapple with our first practical implication. Because we responded to the message of the gospel, because we trusted in Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we are purified. Why? What are we purified for? For entrance into heaven? Possibly, I suppose, but that's not the immediate context of this passage. Why are we purified? Peter tells us in verse 22 that we are purified for love. For love. We're purified for love. And what kind of love? He qualifies it. We were purified for brotherly love. Why? Because we're not saved into an exclusive relationship with Jesus. We're saved into a communal relationship with Jesus and all of the saints. We're saved into the family of God. Because we responded obediently to the message of the gospel, we were purified so we could love all of the children of the gospel, all those who were born again to a living hope. Again, there's a practical implication to this. Ever since 2020, it's become very common for pastors to hear parishioners say something like this. Well, I'm, I'm going to church online. I'm going to church online. Now, what do they mean by that? They, they mean that they're going to watch the service from the comfort of their own home. Now, here's the thing. You, you might be able to catch Pastor Brian's sermon at 1045 and then switch over to TBN and catch Charles Stanley before noon. And, and that might be of some benefit. It, it might be personally edifying. But it's not church. It is impossible to go to church online. Impossible. Why? Because the church is not a television show. It's not a building or even a location. The church is a collective gathered together for mutual benefit. It's a collective of brothers and sisters in Christ. When we gather as a church, we gather to edify and to be edified. When we gather as a church, we gather to love and to be loved. You were purified for love. However, when you exclusively watch the service from home, you have absolutely no outlet for the love for which you are purified. You might say, well, I love my family. I love my coworkers. I love my neighbors. I raked his leaves last week. All of that is good, and there is plenty of scriptural support for, for loving all of those people. However, in the context of our passage, Peter is most concerned with our love for our church family. We are purified for brotherly love expressed within the context of the gathered church. 
You cannot do church online. It is impossible. Why? Well, it's pretty simple. You need to be present with the people you are purified to love in order to love them. The author of Hebrews does not caution us against the forsaking of the watching of the sermon. What does he caution us against? The forsaking of gathering. The forsaking of gathering. You know, Brad Wallace is here this morning. Linda Wallace was in first service. And uh, it's very hard. You guys weren't able to make it for like two years because of health concerns and all other sorts of stuff. And for them, coming to church has been this dear thing. You guys have been able to return. And, and they have to care for their elder daughter. And, and, and so they can only make one service. You know, they have to separate and come to two different services. And coming here is of great sacrifice. And there are many, many shut-ins at home who, and I've said this before, who would crawl through the camera if they could to get here. We belong in church together. If you call yourself a Christian, a disciple of Christ, we belong here together in the community. And we should do everything we can to be present with each other from week to week. You cannot do church online. It's impossible. Now, I do want to be sensitive to those of you who are sitting at home and watching this service. Those of you who have yet to give up on your faith, but but you have been so deeply wounded by an unloving person in the church that you cannot bring yourself to darken the door. First, I want to offer you my empathy. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you were so deeply wounded. I'm sorry you bear those wounds. I'm sorry you, you bear those scars. And second, I want to encourage you. There's a better way to deal with your hurt than becoming a spiritual recluse. There's a better way. What is that better way? It's given to us right here in this text. It's the way of love. It's the way of love. Peter calls us to love sincerely without pretense. And he calls us to love earnestly with effort and persistence. Let's face it. Love in a fallen world does not come natural, does it? Love in a fallen world does not come natural, and it's only natural for us to recoil and safeguard ourselves when when another brother or sister lashes out at us in sin, right? It's natural for us to recoil that way. When we face the dilemma of an unloving brother or sister, we can respond in one of two ways. We we can grow cold and distant and maybe even hard-hearted, or we can love earnestly with great effort and great persistence. The, the former response will bring no healing for your wounds and will leave you to, to wallow in isolation. But, but the latter, the way of love, will what? What does love do? Love covers a multitude of sins. 
Love covers a multitude of sins. Do you know who said that? Peter, right here in this very same book. In the eighth verse of chapter 4, above all, writes the apostle, keep loving one another earnestly. There's that word again. Keep loving one another earnestly with great effort and great persistence since love covers a multitude of sins. How do we know that love covers a multitude of sins? Well, we love because why? He first loved us, right? We love because He first loved us. Consider the hymn that we sing. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear whose mocking voice, my mocking voice, call out among the scoffers. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. My ransom. Beloved, how do you know that love covers a multitude of sins? How do you know that? You know that because his love demonstrated on the cross has covered the multitude of your sins. Your sins. Though he heard your mocking voice call out among the scoffers, his wounds paid your ransom. That's how we know. And what is the great call placed on every Christian at the moment of conversion? Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after him, let him deny himself and take up what? His cross and follow me. You see, beloved, we're not just beneficiaries of the cross. We are practitioners of the cross. We are not just beneficiaries of the cross. We are practitioners of the cross. Every Christian, if you trusted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, that means, that means that you are to live a cruciformed life. You have died to yourself and you are to live towards Christ. Now, that sounds like a heavy burden, right? It does. But you know what? It's not. It's not. Why? Because every sin ever sinned against you was ultimately absorbed by Christ on the cross. Every single sin, every single sin you have committed or has been committed against you was absorbed by Christ on the cross. That's why he could say, take my yoke upon you, for it is easy and my burden is light. Why? Because he took the weight of the burden for us. Because he has absorbed our sins and the sins of those who have offended us. We can forgive. We can love. Why? Because ultimately the wounds of our hearts are tended by the wounded hands of Christ. Earlier this week, my 12-year-old son came to me and he asked, Dad, what do you think about the nature versus nurture debate? Do you think people are who they are or do you think 
They are nurtured to be who they are. I answered, well, a little bit of both, I suppose. Later in the week, we were discussing the Holocaust. This is normal conversation in our house, by the way. (laughs) We're discussing the Holocaust, and the course of the discussion turned back to our previous discussion, the topic of nurture versus nature. Now, do you know who this guy is? If, don't shout it out if you know who he is, but if you know who he is, raise your, raise your hand. Does anyone know who this guy is? He, he's, he's one of the most influential people, if not, not the most influential, but he's one of the most influential people in history. Why? Because he's this guy's dad. He's this guy's dad. And he was an absolutely terrible, terrible man. He was an abusive father who was horrible, absolutely horrible to his son. But none of the atrocities that that man ever committed justified the fury and wrath that his son would unleash on this world. None of them. Absolutely none of them. What's the lesson to be learned there? When we refuse to respond to the offense of others in love, we run the danger of growing embittered. And that bitterness will lay waste to our lives. Not only will it weigh a lace to our lives, but it will destroy the lives of people around us. That is the danger of an unforgiving, unloving heart. Now, I do want to offer a quick caveat here concerning love, forgiveness, and also accountability. Some of you bear tremendous wounds from people who have hurt you. Some, Some of you bear tremendous wounds from people in the church who have hurt you. Um, For instance, maybe someone in this room was sexually abused by someone else in the church. Um, There's no excuse for that. Um, For your sake, you do need to love that person. For your sake, you do need to forgive that person so that you can find healing. But at the same time, there's also accountability. And there needs to be accountability for, for when people sin against other people in the church. Sometimes we use forgiveness and grace as a way to cover up and sweep things under the carpet. And we ought not to do that. There's forgiveness, there is grace, there is love, but there's also accountability. And all of those things need to be in place. I digress. If love in a fallen world is not a natural thing, If to the contrary, it is quite an unnatural thing, then how can we possibly hope to love as Peter expects us to love? Right? If love is this incredibly unnatural thing in a fallen world, then how could we possibly expect to love in the way which Peter expects us to love, in the the way that he is exhorting us to love? And remember, Jesus is our living hope. And when we authentically encounter Jesus, he transforms the very essence of who we are. 
He is the metaphysical and and somewhat mystical reality at work within us. He is the living hope at work within us. And we can love as Peter expects us to love because we are born of an imperishable seed. Look down at verse 23 with me. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed, through the living and abiding Word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains. And this is the good news that was preached to you. Now, whenever we see the term word in the New Testament, uh, we have to to pause and consider the nature of the concepts that it's representing. So there are multiple Greek terms used in this passage to translate uh, the term that we're translating word. Now, scholars tell us that Peter presents a threefold concept here in this text. The word is the divine logos, Jesus Christ, the reason incarnate. So, if you've listened to any sermon I've preached over the past year or two, you've heard me talk about that at length. It's the divine logos. It's also the written word, right? The one that you hold in your hand, And finally, it's the preached gospel, the good news of the salvation extended to us through Jesus Christ. So the word is the divine logos, the written word, and the preached gospel. Now, here's the important thing for us to know. Because all three of these words are are of the same source and substance, they're really just different aspects of the same thing, all of them have the power to impart life. The Word is the imperishable seed planted in the hearts of men from which eternal life springs. The Word is the imperishable seed planted in the hearts of men from which eternal life springs. Now, Peter draws on the poetic language of Isaiah 40, verse 6, to to draw a, a vivid contrast for us. He says, All flesh is like what? Grass. And all its glory is like what? The flower of the grass. And what happens to the grass? It withers. And what happens to the flower? It falls. But what happens to the word of the Lord? It remains forever. We're now at the end of the the summer season. I was sharing with someone during first service that, man, I hate winter. I have hated winter since I was a little boy. I don't know why I, I grew up, you know, Lord in his sovereignty decided, had me grow up in the Northeast and then brought me up here to New England, which is even colder. Uh, I, I, I love summer. I loathe winter. Um, and, and we're now at the end of summer. And I love the lush green grass of my yard, and I love the glorious little flowers that populate my poor, neglected little garden. And sadly, my grass will soon fade to brown, and the petals of the glorious flowers have already begun to fall. 
This terrestrial life is fragile and relatively brief. Now, here's the contrast. Every young, beautiful woman or handsome young man who has ever walked the face of this earth has been met by the same cold, hard reality. The passage of time and the coming of death is inevitable. Good looks and vibrancy wither and eventually they'll give way to breathlessness and decay. It's inevitable. However, we have been born again to what, class? A living hope. A living hope through the imperishable seed of the Word. As noted earlier, when we attach ourselves to the living hope, it has practical implications. What's the most base practical implication? It gives life to our mortal beings. As we abide in the Word and the Word abides in us, life is imparted to our mortal being. It transforms us from spiritual corpse to living, breathing, spiritual being. As the 17th century Puritan John Owen notes, Jesus Christ's living Word loves life into us. He loves life into us. Now, last week, Pastor Brian talked about right living in an upside-down world. And he showed us that holy living is to be expected. Holy living is to be expected. But this morning, we're confronted by this question. Okay, holiness is expected, but is it possible? Is it possible? You know, I often wonder if we languish in our faith, not because we are not capable of greater degrees of holiness, but because we don't believe that we are capable of greater degrees of holiness. It's like Sally Fields in Forrest Gump, right? What she say to Forrest? She says, stupid is as stupid does, right? Stupid is as stupid does. What's the idea there? If you believe you're stupid, then you're going to act stupid. In the same way, if you believe that all you are is a spiritually impoverished wretch, then you are going to act like a spiritually impoverished wretch. However, through our text this morning, Peter is telling you that there is a living hope. There's a living hope living inside of you. There is planted in your heart an imperishable seed with limitless potential to grow and flourish into abundant life. As you sit where you sit and you hear this word preached, there is a miracle taking place in your heart right now. Right now. Looking for a miracle? You're getting it right now at work in your heart. The seed of the word is germinating in the soil of your heart. What happens when you put a seed in the ground, it grows, right? It grows. When the imperishable seed begins to germinate in your heart, 
It takes root and it begins growing into salvation. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 with me. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. In his essay entitled, Going to Heaven with Jesus, From First Peter to Pilgrim's Progress, J. Ramsey Michaels notes that salvation is something to which we are moving, not something for which we are merely waiting. Salvation is something to which we are moving, not, not something for which we are merely waiting. Now, if you don't know, The Pilgrim's Progress is a, a work, a, a literary work of classic Christian literature. It was written and published in 1678 by, by John Bunyan. Now, the book chronicles the, the metaphorical journey of its metaphorical protagonist, aptly named Christian. Now, in this book, Christian, who was born with the name Graceless, bears a great burden on his back. And this burden represents the immense weight of his sin and shame. Desperate to, to find relief from this burden, Graceless starts off on a journey, and he comes to a cross on a hill. And the narrator tells us this. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little blow in the bottom, a grave. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulder and fell from off his back and began to tumble, and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the grave where it fell in, and I saw it no more. Graceless loses his burden at the foot of the cross and so becomes Christian. Now, as modern evangelicals, we think, wow, what a great story. What should I read next? But, but here's the thing. The story doesn't end there. The story doesn't end there. Christian loses his burden in the sixth chapter, but there's eight chapters left to go. And those chapters chronicle Christian's immensely difficult journey from the foot of the cross to the gate of heaven. Listen to me this morning. Listen, this is important. There are many people who have walked the aisle in response to a pulpit call only to abandon the journey there at the foot of the cross. The journey with Christ does not end at the pulpit. It starts there. The life of discipleship is not a one-and-done thing. The life of discipleship is a process that will not end until we take our last breath. 
Remember, in 1 Peter, we are born again into a living hope through the imperishable seed of the Word. Here's the thing about an imperishable seed. It can't perish. An imperishable seed can't perish. It must flourish. When we authentically encounter the Word, we cannot help but to be transformed. When you are truly born again by the imperishable seed, then growth is inevitable. Growth is inevitable. But here's the thing. To grow, we have to feed on the Word. We have to feed on the Word. Peter says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Why? That by it you may grow up into salvation. Right? This makes sense. We're born again. It only makes sense that we would have to grow up. Right? Right? And think about it. Babies grow into children. Right? Children grow into teenagers, unfortunately. Right? Teenagers grow into adults. At least they're supposed to. Here's the thing. Listen, some of us are born again, but we haven't grown up. We are born again, but we haven't grown up. We are like spiritual Gary Coleman's. We are 25, 35, 45, 65 years old, but we could play a spiritual 12-year-old on television. Some of you are a little too young to get that reference. As we have already seen, the source of all spiritual life is the divine word of God. It is God working in us, and that is why it's imperishable. That's why it's imperishable. But there is also a human element to this. There is a human responsibility. The Word works a miracle of life within us, but we need to partake of the Word for that miracle to take place. As we've already seen, we need to respond in obedience to the gospel. Moreover, moreover, we need to regularly consume the Word and be nourished by the spiritual nutrition that it offers so that we can grow and flourish as spiritual beings and disciples of Christ. Listen, being a student of the Word is not the exclusive job of the pastor. Being a student of the Word is not the exclusive job in the pastor. It's not. It is not Pastor Brian's job to study the Word intensely and then get up here and spoon-feed you from week to week. That is not his job. It's your job. Each one of us, without exception, should be a student of God's Word. Now, that doesn't mean that we all need to become scholars. It doesn't mean that we all need to become seminarians to, to read and study God's Word. That's not what it means. As my friend Andy says, you, you don't have to become a monk to become a student of God's Word. We just need to faithfully read the Word and seek to understand it and apply it to our lives. That's it. And, and that can actually be a pretty simple thing to do. 
We have a way of complicating things, making things harder than they need to be. But if you want to grow through the power of the Word, it's actually pretty simple. Let me, let me give you just a little bit of advice here, a, little, a few tips. In this church, we, we do expository sermon series. So, in other words, we usually go through a book at a time. Right now, we are in the book of 1 Peter. So, one of the things you can do if you want to grow is simply read 1 Peter once a week for the entire duration of our series. It's a short book, like five, six chapters. You could, you could read it in a single sitting. You could, you could read it every day of the week if you wanted to. You'll be surprised if you do that. You'll be surprised by how the simple repetition of reading this short letter over and over again will impact your spiritual growth. You will also get way more out of the sermons. You get way more out of the sermons. There's something else that you can do. And that is you can join one of our community groups. Our community groups are essentially Bible studies. And every week, as we break up into our community groups, we take the time to approach the Scripture that we was preached that week, and we digest the sermon and the Scripture, and we seek to apply it to our lives in these little communities of love and accountability. That's it. That's all you need to do. See, you don't need to read through the Bible in a year, right? Honestly, that's in some, some ways like one of the most fruitless things you can do, right? Because like when you're reading through the Bible, everyone starts off with good intentions. It's like, it's like joining the gym, right? The, 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 the parking lot's full on January 1st, but on February 1st, it's empty, right? You know, we start off with great intentions and you know, we start off in Genesis, hey, good story here. And then we hit Leviticus and we're like, yeah, I'm out. Okay. There's more fruitful ways to read the Bible. Just, just honker down in First Peter with us over the next couple of months. So we need to regularly consume the Word and, and be nourished by the spiritual nutrition that it offers so that we can grow and flourish as spiritual beings and as disciples of Jesus Christ. But... We also, we also need to act from the life-giving power of the Word. We need to act from it. Peter wrote, So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and all envy and all slander. Now, malice is a sense of ill will. Deceit is trickery to gain personal advantage. Hypocrisy is pretense, and as we saw in verse 22, it's the opposite of love. Envy is a vindictive sense of jealousy. And slander is intentionally malicious speech against another person. Now, most of these behaviors, which we are to put away, they're sins of the mouth. They're sins of the mouth. These forms of speech stand in direct opposition to the living word that imparts life. They're words of death. 
They're direct opposition to the living word that imparts life. And as Peter was taught by Jesus, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth does what? Speaks. The mouth speaks. All of these sins are sins of the heart. They are the complete opposite of what Peter is exhorting us to do, which is to love with brotherly love. Moreover, all of these sins are sins of bitterness. They're sins of bitterness. They're latent symptoms of an embittered heart, a wounded heart. As I already said, love in a fallen world is not a natural thing. It's only natural for us to recoil and safeguard ourselves when another brother or sister lashes out in sin against us. But sometimes, sometimes we go far beyond recoil. Sometimes we go way too far. You know, Pastor Lynn used to say, hurt people, hurt people. Hurt people, hurt people. Sometimes we go well beyond simply safeguarding ourselves and we employ the sinful tactics of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander in a desperate and twisted attempt to find healing by hurting the person who hurt us. I can tell you, sadly from experience, these tactics never work. They never work. Not only do they not work, they backfire. And they will only allow us to be, grow in our bitterness. And when we grow in our bitterness, it can overtake our heart. Earlier in the message, I mentioned my little neglected garden. We do. We have this beautiful garden at our house for which we can claim zero credit. We inherited this garden from the previous owner, and it's well-timed. It flowers throughout the entire season, and it's absolutely beautiful. Last year, we took very good care of it as new homeowners. We took a lot of pride in it, and we weeded it and tended to it every day. This year, not so much. A little neglected. Those weeds began to, to, to creep in. Until finally, around the end of August, I was like, okay, something needs to be done. And I went out and I pulled all those weeds, and all of a sudden, my vibrant little garden was back. You know, your heart is like a garden. Your heart is, is like a garden. And bitterness is like a weed that grows up from the wounds and the scars that you bear. Here's the thing, you have to work hard to maintain your garden. You have to work hard to maintain your garden. You have to abide in the seed that was planted in your heart and allow that seed to abide in you. You have to constantly tend to the weeds of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Because on this side of eternity, they will relentlessly threaten to overtake you if you do not regularly weed the soil of your heart. It's just reality. We're fallen creatures living in a fallen world. It's okay. Receive the seed that is planted in you 
and weed your garden, right? Because like my little garden, if you commit yourself to the Word and you commit yourself to weeding your heart, then you will inevitably flourish into a lush, beautiful garden. Why? Because you are purified for love, you were born of an imperishable seed, and you were growing into salvation. Now, Peter concludes with these words. He says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Beloved, have you tasted the goodness of the Lord? Have you tasted the goodness of His forgiveness? Have you tasted the goodness of His hope? Have you tasted the goodness of His love? If so, then hold out the hope of love to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Love as you have been loved and give all you are to love. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you did not spare your own son, but you gave him up for us all. Out of your great love, you have extended to us a living hope in Christ. What a tremendous sacrifice you made. Lord, I love my son deeply, and I could not imagine, could not imagine giving him up in the way you gave your son up. But Lord, you did. And we are the beneficiaries of your grace. We are the beneficiaries of the cross. But Lord, we pray through the power of your word at working in us that we that we would become practitioners of the cross. That we would live your love out to the people around us. And not just those who are easy to love, but those who are most difficult to love. Help us live sacrificially as Christ lived sacrificially, died sacrificially for us. And Lord, we know that we can do that because we are not dead in our trespasses and sins. We have been resurrected in His life and in His power. Amen.